Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the federal marriage tax penalty, which is one way that taxes can contribute to inequality in the United States. Since the modern income tax was ratified by the 16th Amendment in 1916, there have been opportunities for single income couples to garner federal tax benefits from marriage. That is, the two adults in the couple can pay less tax in total if they're married than if they remain unmarried. However, with the rise of dual income couples over the past 70 years, marriage more frequently comes with a tax penalty. In today's episode, we explain how this marriage penalty arose and why it may be exacerbating income inequality in the United States. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. I'm super excited for today's topic. The tax consequences of marriage is hands down my favorite day in the personal finance class I teach. So when we decided to do a podcast on the marriage tax penalty and we started outlining the topic, I really, really thought that you were going to start with marriage. (laughs) The thought occurred to me. Yes. Marriage is what brings us together today. Well played. Thank Thank you. But all joking aside, all princess bride references aside, why? Why are you so fascinated by the tax consequences of marriage? I think in class, I like topics that have a little bit of shock value because that's what gets students like really thinking and talking. And when I say talking, I don't just mean talking in class, but that conversation actually extends outside of class. They take it to their peers. They take it home to their families. And it always seems to shock people to realize that not only is marriage one of the biggest financial decisions you could make in life, but also it can significantly impact how the government will tax you. That sounds like a good reason to me. So let's get right to it. To understand where we are on this podcast, we always have to talk about where we've been. So a little bit of a history lesson. When the modern income tax was first enacted in 1916, you and I were just children then. Babies. There was just babies. Uh, there was only one tax bracket and one filing status. So things were super easy. Whether or not you were married, you paid the same rate of tax on your income as the next person. And every single person filed their own tax return, again, whether you were married or not. And it turns out that's actually how many countries still do it, including our neighbor to the North, Canada. And so then in the 1920s, states started developing community property laws that effectively forced a married person to share their income earned during the marriage with their spouse. And the purpose of these laws was to protect the non-working spouse from being left without anything if their working partner left them. That seems good. It seems like a good idea. Very good. But it also opened the door for a non-working spouse to claim half of their working partner's income on their tax return. And this was beneficial because back then, just like today, we had a progressive income tax system, which means that the tax rate gets higher when the amount of income that you report on your tax return goes up. So by allowing the working spouse to report only half the income, they were taxed at a lower rate. And then their non-working spouse reported the other half of the income and faced that same lower tax rate. So as a couple, they saved taxes by getting married in a community property state. But of course, this created some inequality between couples in community property states versus couples in other states who couldn't get that same benefit of splitting their income. 
So in 1948, Congress passed a new law in part to address this issue, and they created the joint return. As a result, any married couple in any state could file their federal return jointly. And it may not seem like it, but this was a pretty big change in the tax law arena. A very big change. Because now, instead of splitting the total income of the two spouses onto two separate returns, any married couple could aggregate their incomes onto one joint tax return. And that income now is subject to a newly created tax bracket made just for married couples. And that married filing jointly tax bracket is not just double the single tax bracket, it's different. That's right. So let's use the 2017 tax brackets as an example. In 2017, a single filer paid the top rate of almost 40% if they earned income above 420,000. A married couple filing jointly paid that same top rate of almost 40% on income above about 470,000. So 470 versus 420, it's not 840 versus 420, right? It's not just doubling the amount of income that's in the single tax bracket. So that example right there is perfect because it's super easy to see the current state of marriage tax benefits for individuals at the higher end of the income spectrum. So let's take a couple where only one partner works and that partner makes, let's say, $450,000. If the couple were to remain unmarried, the working partner's top rate is almost 40% because the single bracket taxes income above about 420 at that top rate. Right. But if they get married, their top rate on that same $450,000 of income is only 35% because the married filing jointly bracket doesn't impose the top rate until income exceeds 470000 So the couple benefits, at least from a tax perspective, by getting married at that income level. So you might be confused because we started off by saying this episode was about a marriage tax penalty and we just yep. talked about a marriage tax benefit, but we're not insane. Okay, we may be insane. Both things can be insane. might be insane, but we're still talking about a marriage tax penalty. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. Not mutually exclusive. So now let's assume we've got the same couple and they still are earning 450 in total, but now it's earned equally by both partners. So each person in the marriage earns $225,000. Married, their top rate is still 35%, just like it was in the last example, because their total income as a couple is below that top married filing jointly bracket. But as single filers, their income is only $225 apiece, like we said, and the single tax bracket only taxes that amount of income at 33%. Now remember, these are 2017 figures. 33% is obviously lower than the 35% the couple is being taxed at while married. And so this is the marriage tax penalty. Yep. We have the same two people earning the same amount of income in total as a couple. All we've done is change how they earn that income from being earned all by one person to being earned equally across both partners. And what happened? We went from a marriage tax benefit to a marriage tax penalty. The equal earners who got married paid more than $11,000 more in tax in 2017 than if they remained unmarried. So that was the marriage tax penalty. But the marriage tax benefit, the opposite is true if we go all the way back to our first example where only one partner earned all $450,000 of that income. In that case, the couple that got married saved more than $11,000 in tax in 2017 by getting married. 
And this is all holding the total amount of income earned by the couple constant. Okay, so here's where it gets kind of interesting, at least when I'm talking with my students, right? You're talking to a young couple. They're in love. As my stepfather would say, they're in love. <laughs> they're in love. Marriage. They want to get married and have a wedding with all their friends and family there. And I looked this up, the average cost of a wedding in 2021, which by the way, was a down year in cost for weddings because of COVID. The average cost in 2021 was a little more than $20,000, according to Business Insider. Which surprises me. I would think that people, I know that people spend a lot more than that getting married. I think there's a wide range, right? There are people like me who just go down to the courthouse. So a couple willing to spend $20,000 to have a wedding may not see an $11,000 tax cost of getting married as being big enough to factor in to their decision. Exactly. But the thing is, it's not $11,000 total, right? Hopefully you get married one time, you spend the $20,000, that's a one-time fee. If you get married though, you're paying that additional $11,000 of tax every single year. Exactly. So if you assume that this couple, this young couple in love wisely invest that $11,000 of savings each year over 30 years, earning a return of about 6%, they would be almost a million dollars richer if they did take taxes into consideration when deciding if they should get married. And a million dollars is not nothing. No. Now, our examples so far use a relatively high amount of income and 2017 tax rates. So let's change those assumptions, right? Let's turn those dials first. At the median amount of household income in the U.S., which is about $70,000, there really is no tax consequence of marriage, either now or back in 2017. It doesn't matter if the income is earned by one or two partners, whether you get married or not, your tax bill is going to be the same at that level of income. That's right. And the same is generally true even at twice the median level of income, both in 2017 and today. So the marriage benefits and penalties really only start to kick in at higher levels of income when we're thinking about rates and brackets. But as we'll talk about a little bit later, there can actually be marriage penalties at lower levels of income, which is not a good idea at all. Exactly. Yeah. And the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 significantly changed the tax brackets from those rates that we were talking about, which were 2017 rates. So in large part, it changed the brackets to try to eradicate the marriage tax penalty, which has been a persistent problem in the tax code due to the rise of dual income households since about you know the post-war period. The TCJA changes both increase the amount of tax benefit a married couple with a single high earner gets and decrease the amount of tax penalty a married couple with two high earners pays. Right. So back to our example, but now we're going to use information after 2017, after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. A couple with one worker earning $450,000 saves more than $28,000 per year from being married relative to being unmarried. Wow. Non-trivial. I'll take $28,000, please. Absolutely. And that's a much, much larger marriage tax benefit than the about $11,000 we talked about in 2017. Right. But if we go back to that situation where we assume both partners are earning $225,000 each, there's no difference in taxes, whether they're married or unmarried, when we're thinking about rates and brackets. So the marriage tax penalty at that level of income has pretty much gone away. Again, we're not talking about deductions and credits and other things that can cause problems. But from a rates and brackets standpoint, the TCJA increased the marriage tax benefit, kind of decreased the marriage tax penalty at higher levels of income. 
And I'll never forget that day, December 22nd of 2017, the day President Trump signed the TCJA into law. And my non-working partner turned to me and said, you know, we'd save a lot of money in taxes if we got married. Very romantic proposal. That man knows his audience. Now that we have a bit of history behind the origins of marriage tax benefits and penalties, let's discuss the role they play in inequality in the U.S. But first, why are we even talking about this? (laughs) Um, Because it's a tax topic and this is a tax podcast. I don't understand the question. Okay, so that's that's an obvious answer. My question, what I mean, is why do we care? if taxes influence some young lovebird's decision about whether or not to get married. Okay, well, I think we care. Okay, scratch that. I think people should care. Right, the broader we, the royal we. (laughs) Yes, the royal we. Yes, society as a whole should care for two reasons, at least. Okay, bring it. First, so there is an argument that good tax policy should be neutral, meaning it shouldn't encourage or discourage people from doing something like, you know, say, committing yourself to another human until death solely for tax reasons, like, frankly, I did. (laughs) Do as I say, not as I do. All right, fair enough. Continue. Second, as we'll talk about in a minute, this particular tax policy, which is not neutral, right? Our examples show it is not neutral and it tends to disproportionately disadvantage certain groups, thereby playing a role in inequality in the U.S. And that to me is something we should care about. Okay. You've convinced me. I will continue. We just said that couples with a single earner, or it can also be the case that we've got one super high earner and one relatively low income earner, are more likely to get a marriage tax benefit whereas couples with two relatively equal earners are more likely to pay a marriage tax penalty. And although the tax penalty is smaller for most households in recent years, thanks to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it still exists. And more importantly, it existed for the last 70 years, during which we saw a dramatic increase in the share of women in the workforce. That's right. More and more households presumably were subject to the marriage tax penalty as more and more women entered the workforce. So don't you just love being a woman? I do. We get paid on average 84% of what men get paid, according to the Pew Research Center. And if we're married to a partner who works, we pay a tax penalty on top of that. And it, it matters, right? Yes. Because if I earn less pre-tax income, I'm only earning 84% of what my Uh male spouse is earning. And then we turn around and evenly split our higher tax bill because we're married. Then there's a good possibility if we're not pooling everything that I wind up with less after-tax income. Right. The marriage tax penalty, at least traditionally, is just one example of many types of ways women wind up with less after-tax income than men and thus less wealth over time. But unfortunately, the inequality issues do not stop at gender. No, sadly, they don't. We're, we're going to discriminate against all, all different <laughs> types of groups here with our marriage tax penalty. Equal opportunity discrimination. Yes. yes. So there's race inequality as well. And that issue is very nicely argued in a 2021 book by Dorothy Brown. She is a law professor at Emory University. And the book is called The Whiteness of Wealth. 
Her argument is pretty simple and straightforward. White couples can more frequently rely on a single earner, Mm -hmm. which can allow them to actually get a marriage tax benefit, like we've talked about, versus Black couples who more frequently need both spouses to work in order to support their household and thus are potentially subject to that marriage tax penalty. And this argument is backed up by data from the Pew Research Center, which estimates that the median U.S. hourly wage of Black workers was only about 75% of that of white workers in 2021. So if Black workers earn less on average, it's absolutely more likely that they would need two incomes to support the same type of household. And thus, it's more likely that they would pay a marriage tax penalty. The same logic applies to any group that experiences a pay gap relative to white men. Okay, so marriage tax penalty disadvantaging women, disadvantaging any group that experiences a pay gap relative to white men. And then we also have some issues with same-sex couples. Yep. So for several years, same-sex couples could not legally be married. So if one partner was a high earner and the other partner had little or no income, they likely could have received a tax benefit had they been allowed to file joint tax returns. Yep. But thankfully, we are seeing progress on that front. Thanks to a Supreme Court ruling in 2013, which, by the way, was a tax case, (laughs) the federal government is now required to recognize same-sex marriages in states where they are legal, which means letting same-sex married couples file joint returns and realize their marriage tax benefit when they qualify. So it is time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of marriage tax consequences. And I think I can start us off today with some something that's good, I think, in theory, maybe. I think. I think okay. it's good. All right. I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised, yet cautiously uh, optimistic how this is going to turn out. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So I think, like I said, one possible good reason for what seems to be a confusing aspect of the tax code as it relates to marriage is that it could, if we're being generous here, be Mm -hmm. viewed as an attempt to recognize unpaid work inside the home. Say more words. I'm happy to, you know, I'm always happy to say more (laughs) words. So one of the arguments for why a marriage tax benefit should exist is that the non-working spouse is traditionally at home taking care of the household and the children. And that is hard work. But it's unpaid work, even Uh though it is exceptionally difficult and exceptionally valuable. It is a job that 100% hands down I would fail at. (laughs) So I'm an accounting professor instead. (laughs) Easier than taking care of a seven-year-old. So the thought process is that one way the government can compensate the couple for the unpaid labor of one spouse is to more lightly tax the income of the spouse who works outside the home. I am really proud of you. You just identified a good aspect of all of this. Something good in life. It's, it's a new year. 2022, year of the optimist. All right. So I'm also proud of myself turning over a new leaf. But regardless of how it originated or whether it can make sense on some level, it's a matter of fact that taxes can systematically bias certain genders or races to a greater extent. And that is not good. Yeah, no, not not good at all. As you said, regardless of how we got here, the impact, if it's a disparate impact of marriage tax penalties that's been potentially very harmful, that needs to be fixed. One other thing we haven't touched on yet is that marriage tax penalties can disincentivize the lower income spouse, often called the second wage earner, from working at all. 
And because women are disproportionately second wage earners, because we have that pay gap, the marriage tax penalty can encourage them to stay home and out of the job market entirely, which could make it really difficult for women to achieve equality in the labor market. And it can be really bad news if the couple eventually divorces, because Mm -hmm. now a woman who stayed out of the labor market, maybe for tax reasons for many years, could be facing a skill gap or an experience gap that makes it super difficult for her to reenter the workforce at all, and definitely not at the same rate of pay that she would have if she had been in the market the entire time. So that idea of compensating unpaid labor by giving tax breaks to paid labor maybe doesn't work all that well in practice, even though it's a good idea. I tried. I tried to see the good in the situation, and now you're telling me it's not that good. But I I applaud the effort. I applaud the effort. It's a new leaf. I appreciate that. So now we can get to the ugly, where I think we're both pretty comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) So most of our examples today focused on differences in tax rates and income brackets. But it turns out that the lack of marriage neutrality in our tax code is more pervasive than that. So for example, marriage tax penalties can be found in some deductions, like the state and local tax deductions that we've talked about, and even in income tax credits. Yep. One of the big ones is the earned income tax credit, which is a tax incentive that's intended to benefit lower income taxpayers. Eligibility for this credit can be substantially reduced or even eliminated when two lower income earners get married, which puts a disproportionate marriage tax penalty on lower income earners. That's right. And an August 2021 article by the Tax Policy Center characterized this particular incarnation of the marriage tax penalty as an example of a trend where policymakers offer benefits to older and richer married couples whose children are grown but tend to penalize younger and poorer parents who are currently raising their children. And it was an interesting article, it was an interesting take, and it actually used the phrase divorce bonus, which kind of stuck out to me and horrified me a little bit. (laughs) Totally. Like, it's one thing to think of the tax code as maybe penalizing a marriage, but it, 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 it really puts it in sharp relief if we flip it on its head and view it as incentivizing divorce. Yeah, that's that's not good tax policy. I think we can agree on that. Agreed. It's supposed to be a blessed arrangement. That dream within a dream. <laughs> love. True love. love. <laughs> Say man and wife. <laughs> well done. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomper. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Mass.